Amen. Thank you, Nate and the unveiled worship team. Our God is a great, great God. Amen? Amen. Man, every one of his promises are true. Our God will come through always. We can sing that with confidence. Amen? Amen. Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I am still on sabbatical. But part of my sabbatical is doing this because I so enjoy this. This so gives me an opportunity to connect with God and to um, refresh my own soul, being able to pour out God's word um, that, as he's gifted me to do. And so I just uh, wanted to say that Kurt did not manipulate me to be up here this morning. I actually went to him before my sabbatical started and I said, Kurt, I don't want to come to the meetings. I can do without meetings in my life for three months. I can, I can do without that. I can do without some of the responsibilities I have in the office on a regular basis to manage the finances and, and uh, property and rental agreements here at the church. Um, I can do without some of that. So I'm taking a rest from, from a lot of the, those responsibilities uh, during this season. But one of the things I really enjoy doing is getting up here and opening up God's word and being able to proclaim it to those who need to hear it. And so I asked Kurt, can I, can I still speak a couple times during these months? And Kurt said, yeah, I guess if you want to. And so, um, so you'll hear me today and July 4th. Um, I'll be up here as well. Um, but I wanted to share with you that I have had some really fun opportunities to rest with my family so far in my sabbatical in May. Uh, our extended family went to a couple national parks in Utah. Uh, the one that you see behind me is... Um, Bryce Canyon National Park. It's, it's magnificent. Um, inspiration point there. I was there with my wife and uh, uh, just reminded when, when I step into these uh, places of beauty that are within our country, within the boundaries of our country, you just start to realize how great is our God. You realize how big and magnificent his works are and how small we are, how insignificant we are, and yet he loves us. And yet he has designed a plan for us. This is my son and I, uh, who <laughs> my son drug me up this, this uh, climb. This is in Zion National Park, which is also in Utah. Um, we're up at the top. Thank God we made it to the top of Angel's Landing, which is in the middle of the park. And uh, Josh went up like a gazelle, and I struggled <laughs> with all my might like to keep up with him. But uh, I did make it to the summit. That's evidence I wasn't photoshopped into that picture. <laughs> that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful vista of the entire valley. It's like a canyon that's been carved out through probably something called a diluge that happened in our world at one time. I think the Bible might have mentioned that. Maybe Genesis 6, you can read it. Um, there was a mighty flood. And you see some of these, these lands in Utah, which, you know, our country neglects for the most part. Who goes to Utah, Right? except for these beautiful places exist and they're evidence of God's handiwork. And so it's good to be reminded. It's good to get away. It's good to be with my family and be able to take some time to rest. And so I am thankful and grateful for those of you guys who are praying for me during my sabbatical period. We're also going to go, coming up here on Thursday, we leave for what I reference as our epic road trip. And uh, we're going to be going to the Grand Tetons, to Yellowstone, and to Glacier National Park. Um, up in Montana. And so pray for us as we're gone for a couple weeks coming up here in June. Um, I'm going with just my immediate family this time and 
my mother-in-law, Mary Ann, is going to come with us because she's always with us. And uh, we love her, and she pays half the bills. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Nah, nah. But uh, we're going to have a great time. I'll, uh, hopefully in July I can present some of those pictures to you as well. And um, um, yeah, so just keep praying for me as I just refresh and just kind of um, re-energize for the next seven years of ministry ahead. And I'm excited to be with you this morning, opening up the word in Galatians. You know, legalism is still a problem in the church today. As it was in Paul's day in, in the churches of Galatia, he's addressing the issue of adding requirements, legalistic requirements to the gospel and how destructive that can be. How that can get our eyes off of Jesus and off of the plans that he has for us, the freedom that he has given us to live and to love first. As he has first loved us, we are to love first. That's our theme in 2021. But legalism can creep into the church. It can creep in with the different areas where we begin to get our eyes off of Jesus and onto things. They can be good things. They can be spiritual standards that we set for ourselves or for others in the church. But we must keep in mind that legalism does not mean that we don't set spiritual standards. But it does mean that worshiping these standards... And thinking that we are spiritual, that we're right with God because we're obeying a set of rules is wrong. It's wrong-minded. It also means that judging other believers on the basis of these kinds of standards is wrong. That's legalism. A person can refrain from smoking, from drinking, from going to the movie theaters, whatever standards are set, and still be unspiritual. And still be not right with God. You remember the Pharisees. They had high moral standards. They had high spiritual goals that they had set for themselves and others. And yet they rejected and crucified the Messiah, Jesus. No doubt the Judaizers of this day, the people that were infiltrating the churches in Galatia that Paul is so burdened with, no doubt that they were attractive people. They carried credentials from religious authorities. They had high standards and were careful in what they ate and what they drank. They were effective in making converts and liked to advertise all of their accomplishments. They had rules and standards to cover every area of life, making it easy for their followers to know who was spiritual and who was missing the mark. But the Judaizers were leading the people into bondage and defeat. They were leading them away from Jesus and not towards him. Not into liberty and victory. And the people did not know and recognize the difference. And it's to this audience that Paul is addressing this book. We're in the final section of chapter 4. This is really the second section of three sections in the book of Galatians. You remember in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is really defending his authority, his right to speak into their lives, his apostleship. Many of the Judaizers are like, who's this Paul anyway? Why should he have authority? Why should he be the one that you guys are listening to? You should listen to us. We come from Jerusalem. We come from the epicenter of the church. 
Why would you listen to Paul? And so Paul is burdened. He was the missionary that carried the gospel to these people in the first place. He was the one that gave them the message of the good news that Jesus had come to rescue them from their sins, to pay the penalty for sin on the cross, and that all they had to do is accept the work of God's grace by faith. Faith alone. Trust in his work, not your own. And you will be cleansed from your sin. And you will have eternal life. You can begin that journey of joy and freedom that God intends for you to live. The abundant life. And the Judaizers would come along and say, yeah, Jesus is good, but you should also be doing all these things. And you should also be following all of our instructions. And we got some good things to add to the gospel of grace. And yet all it did is distort the gospel of grace, get their eyes off of Jesus and onto all these legalistic things. And Paul was concerned. Paul was upset. Paul said, this is not right. And so he spent two chapters defending, sharing his testimony and saying, guys, listen to me. Don't get off track when it comes to what God wants you to be focused on. The second section here that we're, we're wrapping up today is section where we have chapters 3 and 4, and it's really the doctrinal section of the book. It can get kind of dry and tedious at times. How many have felt that maybe the last few weeks as we've been going chapters 3 and 4? It's very, like, deep. It's very much, like, based on an argument of Scripture. And Paul is going back to the Old Testament and back to the promises of God. And he's sort of, he's, he's walking the Galatians through this idea of what God intended by sending his son Jesus into the world. What was the whole plan of salvation? And how had the Judaizers gotten off track and tried to convince them of something else? It's the doctrinal section of the book. How Christ had fulfilled the law through his perfect obedience, his death, and his resurrection. And because of Jesus, we can experience the grace of God and a new relationship through faith. So it's with this in mind as we wrap up this second section and before we dive into the final two chapters coming in the next week, couple of weeks, beautiful chapters, the practical outworkings of accepting the instruction that Paul has given us today is found in chapters 5 and chapter 6. What does it look like, practically speaking, to walk in liberty, to walk in faith? That's what Paul's going to focus on. He's going to talk about, let's, let's bring it down to the practical level. But today, as we wrap up this doctrinal section, I hope that you can see this beauty of this argument that Paul concludes. Let's start in verse 19 of chapter 4. We're in Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 19. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying, I'm in agony. I feel like I'm someone who's about to give birth. That's the type of pain I'm going through. Not physically necessarily, but emotionally and spiritually. Why? Because he was the one who had birthed the gospel in them. He was the one who had shared the good news of Jesus with them. And so in, in, in essence, they were his spiritual children. And I know right now there's a little buddy in the hospital, his name's Henry. How many have been praying for little Henry? Look at all the hands up. We've been putting it in our newsletter, in our prayer requests, that Henry was born and he had something that wasn't quite right. 
and he's had to go, undergone it just a few like weeks or I don't even know, days old. He had to, had to have his heart have surgery on it. It had some sort of infection in the heart. And he's been battling for his life. And the parents are there every day. I can't imagine going through that as a parent. The agony of not knowing if your child's going to make it. The agony of being there every day, and sometimes there's good news, sometimes there's bad news. And you're just going through every one of those travails and trials with your child, hoping that you're going to see them come to health and maturity. That's what Paul is doing for the church in a spiritual way. He's seen them come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And yet now it seems like they have an infection that's come into their lives. What are they going to do if the infection begins to kill off what was first placed in them, the life of the gospel of Christ? And so Paul is saying, I want to see you come to maturity. What does maturity look like? It's when Christ is formed in us. When we become little Christ walking around, that's maturity. That's what Christianity, Christian, means. Christian means little Christ. So when you call yourself a Christian, you're saying, I represent Jesus. I'm going to walk around this world as a little Christ. Does that mean that you're going to be perfect like Christ was? Unfortunately, no. We still have that sin nature. We still battle the flesh. But it does say that we are committed to living our lives as a representative of Christ. And when we do mess up, we apologize. We confess that. We say, God is right, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And you get back right with God and right with others. That's the importance of living authentic Christianity in our world. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul wrote these words to another set of believers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came and gave his life for all, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until, what's the goal? Until all, we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. What's the goal of Paul's ministry, his work, his apostleship? Why, was God, why did God give Paul to the church in Galatia as an apostle? Paul outlines it right here. He says, the goal is so that I can train you and build you up to be like Christ. And so Paul is just, he's torn in his spirit with the fact that they are not being like Christ. They are getting their eyes off of what Jesus intends and onto all this other nonsense that the Judaizers have tried to to lure them away from and get their eyes focused on. The same thing can happen in our churches today. We should be about God's agenda, and that agenda is centered on Jesus Christ. It's not centered on all the other peripherals. As much as some of those things can be good to be striving for, if we begin to worship them, if we begin to judge others based on them, we've missed something. We've missed the simplicity of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, don't miss that. Stay focused on that. 
verse 20 of Galatians, back to chapter 4. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. I mean, I wish I was standing right in front of you right now, but it's impossible. I can't be there. Back then, you couldn't just, like, go buy a Delta flight and, like, be there in an hour. Okay, Southwest. Let's be honest. But you couldn't do that back then. It was difficult to travel. It took a lot of planning. It took a lot of preparation. You had to do it during the right season. There were ships involved. There were seas involved. There were roads. There were, you know, long journeys on foot. So Paul can't be there, but the letter can get there faster. But he wants to be there. He wants to look them in the eye. Just like when I hear one of my kids is off on the wrong foot, I don't like to send them a letter. I don't like write them a text, right? I like to say, hey, let's eye to eye here. Let's talk. You know, I'm your dad. I want to get you like straightened out. I want to make sure you're, you're understanding this. You're feeling this moment of what I'm trying to communicate to you as a dad. Tell me, verse 21, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. Paul's basically going to give them a little history lesson. He's going to bring them back to the father, Father Abraham, father of the faith, father of the nation of Israel. Even before Isaac and Jacob, there was Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, right after the Tower of Babel, right after the flood, right after the judgment of the first earth age, if you will, that first um, time where God had people living 900 years long, he cut it down to 120 years in the time of Noah. And he said, my spirit can't contend with men for that many years. It becomes a total disaster with their sin nature. So he shortens the lifespan of humanity and he begins to call out a new man that he's going to work his plan of salvation through and his name is Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 12 through 21. But I want to recap some highlights from the life of Abraham this morning. Number one, we're going to go through the ages that Abraham had something significant happen through Genesis 12 through 21. Uh, the first one, he was 75 years old when God appeared to him and called him to leave his homeland and go to a land that he would show him, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And he said, I will make you a great nation. I will give you descendants that are so numerous you couldn't count them. Look up into the stars. Can you count them? That's how many children you're going to have. And God promises him something. And God says, I will make you great. I will bless you, and I will bless all the nations through you. God is, an, is picked as man to work the story of redemption and salvation through. Guess how old he was? 75 years old when God called him. How many of you guys are under the age of 75 right now? Raise your hand. Okay, God's still going to be working in your life. He hasn't even started yet, right? God called this man at 75 years old and said, hey, I'm, I'm about to start a work in your life. At 85, 10 years later, the Bible says that Sarah, his wife, got impatient. Said, maybe God needs us to help him out. And so she suggests, they had a servant girl, her name was Hagar, she suggests, hey, maybe you should take Hagar as a second wife, have a baby through her. 
And so Abraham goes, oh, I guess so. That sounds like a good plan. And so he goes ahead and does it. The next year, Ishmael is born at the age of 86 in Abraham's life. And all it does is birth envy on the part of his wife, Sarah. All of a sudden, she sees that uh, another woman has been able to give him something that she had hoped to be able to give him, a son. And it leads to problems in the home. But 14 years later, about 13 years later, at 99 years old, God appears to Abraham again and says, no, I haven't fulfilled my plan yet. Yeah, you went off on your own. You did your own thing. You listened to your wife in a wrong way. That's not good. But I'm about to give you your son through Sarah. And Abraham laughs. He's like, uh, surely, God, you don't, haven't seen Sarah lately. She's like, yeah, I love her, but she's, her body's dead. Her womb's gone, right? She's old. She, at that time, she was 89 years old. How many ladies like to give birth at 89? Yeah. So, so God appears. He recommits. He says, you know, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. And guess what? A year later, Isaac was born, miraculously. Romans chapter 4 says her body, his body, was as good as dead when they had Isaac. That is a miracle of God. That's supernatural, what took place to provide a baby in her womb. Isaac was born miraculously. Three years later, Abraham, Sarah was 90 when he was born. Uh, Abraham's 103. Hagar and Ishmael are booted out. Why? Because when Isaac was weaned at three years old, they had a celebration. And at that celebration, Ishmael began to persecute and mock Isaac. And that drove Sarah crazy. And she said, I cannot live with this kind of stuff going on in my household. They got to go. Something's got to go. And it's got to be them. And God affirms, yep, that's the right way to move forward. And so they're sent out from their household. So we have the life of Abraham in a nutshell. You can go back and read it more yourself because I don't have time. But that was what's going on. So on the surface, it just looks like, hey, Paul's about to reference a story where they're like all messed up. The household's messed up. Sounds like, you know, some sort of like uh, soap opera that we're reading here. Some sort of messed up family. But look at verse 23. Verse 23, Paul continues. He says, But the one by the slave, that would be Hagar, was born according to the impulse of the flesh, while the one by the free woman, that would be Sarah, was born as a result of a promise. These things are illustrations. Now that word illustrations in the Greek is allegorio. Allegorio is our English word allegory, it means that there's a spiritual reality that that story is, is revealing. Something that may not be evident, but God has, has written that story, has allowed that to be recorded in his word, because he has something spiritually profound that he wants people to understand from it. Now, in no way does allegory negate or deny the historicity or the, the reality of the story itself. In other words, it wasn't like Abraham didn't exist, or that Abraham was just a fable or a fairy tale. No, Abraham was a real man. 
And his story of what happened in his family was a real event. Just like when Jesus says, hey, I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So Jesus is not saying that, you remember Jonah's fairy tale? You remember that fairy tale that was written back in Jonah? No, he's not saying that. He's saying there was a real guy named Jonah. He really got swallowed by a fish. But all of that was done so that a spiritual reality could be portrayed, and it's going to be portrayed in me. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to be put into the ground for three days. And after three days, I'm going to be coming out of the ground. I'm going to be risen. So we have this allegory that is created by this story of Abraham and his two wives, Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac, the two children. So Paul begins with the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and explains that they illustrate two births, the physical birth that makes us sinners and the spiritual birth that can make us children of God. So Ishmael represents our physical birth, conceived in slavery to sin. Hagar was a slave. It was not the choice of God. Do you remember them consulting God in that moment? Did, did Abraham go, hey God, what do you think of my wife's proposal that I get with the slave girl? No, that's missing from the, the account. Abraham didn't consult God in that moment. Sarah came up with her own idea. It was never within the will of God. It was outside of the will of God. That's called sin. So the whole plan of having Ishmael was conceived in sin. It was conceived in bondage, and it was born of the will of the flesh. But Isaac represents our spiritual birth. It's conceived in power and promise. There's no way, humanly speaking, that a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old should be having a baby. It was conceived in power. It was conceived in promise. And it was born into the blessing and freedom that God intended. Isaac illustrates the new life in some amazing ways as you look at his story. He was born by God's power and promise, as I mentioned. He brought joy and fulfillment once he was born. It says that his name means laughter, partly because they couldn't believe that they had a baby. So they were like laughing, like they remembered they laughed when God said they were going to have a baby. And now they're laughing because they're like, can you believe it? We have a baby. And it brought their family such joy and laughter. That's what the new life when we come to Christ brings us. It brings us a sense of relief from the burden that we carry of the guilt and shame of our own sin. And we just laugh. We're like, can you believe it? All my sins are forgiven because of Jesus. And it brings us joy and fulfillment. It also illustrates that Isaac was weaned and he grew up. God intends for us to grow up in our faith. The moment of salvation is not the end all. It's the beginning point of what we should be a journey towards maturity in Christ. It's outlined there in Ephesians chapter 4. We're to grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. We aren't to stay infants in our faith. We aren't continuing to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. We're to grow up and to leave the childish things behind. It also illustrates the new life in the fact that he bore unjust persecution 
from his brother Ishmael. When you come to Christ, you're going to experience unjust persecution. I'm not talking about something you do where somebody gives you some persecution. That's your own fault, right? We're going to reap our, our consequences to our choices, and I've made a lot of dumb ones. Trust me. But I'm talking about that persecution that comes when we represent Jesus Christ. Isaac represents that new life. He was persecuted unjustly by his older brother. And he became a living sacrifice. I don't have time to go into that, but in Genesis 22, you can read how Isaac represents what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. And so we get into the next section of our text here in in verses 24. These things are illustrations for the women represent the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. I entitled my message this morning, Who's Your Mommy? We talk a lot about, like, who's your daddy, right? We've heard that expression. But, but this morning, the text is really like, you need to choose. Who's going to be your mommy? Is it going to be the free woman, symbolically Sarah? Or are you going to choose the flesh? Are you going to choose bondage? Are you going to choose to live your life on your own terms? And that's Hagar. We have a choice to make, and that choice is Spiritually speaking, who's going to be our mother? Paul argues that Sarah is to be our mother. She is the free woman. She is the one who represents grace. Hagar represents the law and all that it brings. All the entrappings, all the guilt, all the shame, all the disappointment. Because we can't measure up. Mount Sinai is where the law was given, you remember, to Moses and the people. And Paul equates Mount Sinai as being transferred all the way to Jerusalem. That's now the center of where the law exists. And guess where the Judaizers came from? Jerusalem. So he's saying, hey, are you going to listen to that? Are you going to listen to the people that represent Hagar and the law from Mount Sinai and Jerusalem? They only bear children into slavery. They're only going to keep you into bondage. You're never going to experience the freedom that Christ intends you to enjoy if you go that direction. No, he wants them to choose their mommy as Sarah, as the woman who represents grace. It was God's grace that chose Sarah in the first place. She didn't deserve it. As a matter of fact, she had a a lack of faith. She laughed when she heard that she was going to have a child. And yet God said, I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to work through you. That's my grace. God graciously gave her her child Isaac because he had promised it and because he is faithful to every one of his promises as we've sung. Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem and it births children into freedom. Now, In Hebrews chapter 12, I don't have time to read it this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul develops that even further. Or Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know. Some say it was Paul, some say it wasn't. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews develops that concept even more. So if you ever want to read more about the concept of 
of Mount Sinai and the, and the covenant that was given there versus the new covenant that represents the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 and you can read it there. So how does Hagar illustrate the law? First of all, she was the second wife. See, you remember back in the garden when man fell from God and chose disobedience to God? Do you remember that God didn't give the law in that moment, did he? No, he gave grace. As a matter of fact, he covered up their shame with fig leaves and he provided a covering for them. That's grace. And then he gave them a promise. And he said, hey, there's going to be a seed that's going to come from the woman one day. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent and all he stands for. And that was Satan. It was grace that God began with, not law. Law was the second wife, if you will. She was a servant. Hagar was a servant. That represents the law. The law was to serve a purpose for a time and a season. It was to be a custodian so to speak. It was to, it was to sort of like keep the nation sort of on the right track morally. That's what the law was given for. It was to just be a servant, to serve a good purpose, but it was also to be a mirror. We see that in the book of James, that, that the uh, author James says, hey, that when you look into the law, you see all of your blemishes. When you, see, when you look into a perfect mirror, you see what's wrong with yourself. And you should take the corrective measures to do something about what's wrong. So the law was there as a servant. The law was never meant to deliver. Neither was Hagar. Hagar wasn't meant to deliver a child. That wasn't God's will. That was the will of Abraham and Sarah to choose that path. Neither was the law meant to deliver us from what binds us which is sin. We can't be delivered through the law. She gave birth to a slave. It says that Ishmael was a wild man. No one could tame him. And you know, I've done some research, and Ishmael is the father of Islam. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations that exist in our world today. As a matter of fact, over in Saudi Arabia, there's a place called Mecca that they believe that, that Hagar and Ishmael were kicked out into Mecca. And that that's the place that they now have the, the Hajj or the journey, that the pilgrimage to come and to dance around this statue that they believe was built by Ishmael and blessed by Abraham. And that's, the, that's one of the holiest sites in, in Islam. And they believe that Muhammad descended from Ishmael. And so the whole thing, as you, as you look at this spiritual picture of, of Islam and Christianity and Judaism, you see all these, these major world religions or, or, or ideas. They, they stem from this one family. And Satan has used it to confuse and to frustrate and to cause turmoil. And we still live in that today, do we not? In the land of Israel, we see it, rockets being propelled one direction or the other, and I'm not here to get into a political discussion, but we can see the idea that this stems from, from disobedience to God. It wasn't his plan. And ultimately, she was cast out. The law needs to be cast out, and that's the point 
that Paul is making through this text. And so we get to verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman who does not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate are many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. You know, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 here. What's interesting is there's Isaiah 53, which is a very powerful passage that portrays the Messiah, the suffering servant. Listen, I'm going to read the verse right before the one Paul quotes. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will give him, speaking of the suffering servant of the text of Isaiah 53, and you need to read Isaiah 53 if you haven't. It's a picture of Jesus, the Messiah. I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels, those who were not right with God, those who were sinful, like all of us were. So the Bible tells us and Paul tells us that rejoice, childless woman, who does not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate, this is speaking of the time of the exile of Israel, the time where they had already blown it. God had chosen to place them as a nation to be a light to the Gentiles. They weren't a light. They just started doing all the things the nations did around them. And God says, that's it, my judgment needs to fall. And it fell on them, and they were scattered to the nations, scattered to Babylon, scattered to Assyria. But God says, there's a promise coming. You're going to have more children through what I'm going to do through you, even as a desolate woman, than all the, the progress that you made when you had a husband and lived in the land. And that's a promise that God has fulfilled because of Christ. You realize when Christ came, all of a sudden all the world could receive the blessing and the promise of salvation through faith in what, in what Jesus accomplished. So verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now he's getting right back to the Galatians. He's saying, guys, you guys are like Isaac. You're the children of promise. But just as then the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Spirit, so also now. So also there's, there's the ones who were born according to the flesh. They're coming into your churches and they're beginning to, to persecute you and say that the way that you've learned, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, that's not the right way. You need something else or you're not doing it right. That's happening in your church. It's happening now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son. Remember, it's representing all that that stands for. The slavery to the law. The son that was not according to the spirit of God, but according to the flesh. Drive it out. Get rid of it. If anybody teaches another gospel, get them out of your church. If anybody starts to say, we got to adhere to all these other guidelines, say, no, that's not what we're here for. We're here for Christ and Christ alone. Drive that out of your life and out of your church, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers, 
We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So how are we to respond this morning to the text? It was the same way the Galatians were challenged to respond. To Hagar, which is equated with the law. To Ishmael, which is equated with the sin nature. Should we try to change them? Should we try and like somehow like fit that in within our um, experience here at Crossroads or in the church? Should we try and like compromise with them? Is that what we're called to do? No, you can't change the law. You can't compromise on these things. You can't somehow manipulate the sin nature to make it good. It's not going to work. Just like it wasn't going to work for Hagar and Ishmael to stay in the house with Isaac and Sarah. God knew it wasn't going to work. And so he said, it's time to get, send them away. Yeah, I'm going to take care of them. And God even says he's going to take care of them. He's even going to bless them. And we've seen that. The Arab nations have blessing on them. They have tons of oil. You see how much oil they create? Which turns into riches. Now what have they done with their blessing? That's the real question. Right? Have they used it for good and for God's purposes? I'll leave that to you, but we can't change or compromise the law and the sin nature. God tells us to drive them out. Now this morning I know that this text is kind of like, whoa, this is, this is like deep, right? This is something that Paul really is diving into the Old Testament and drawing out this allegory story to represent a spiritual reality. But the whole purpose that he's doing this is he wants the church to reject what the Judaizers are trying to sell and to accept the freedom that they've gained in Christ Jesus. And in chapters 5 and 6, as we, begin, as we continue this series, you guys are going to all see what freedom, when you live in freedom, what that can create in the church, what that can create in a community, what, that, what the result of that can be in the transforming of lives through the Spirit of God and through the power of God. And so I, I pray that you'll continue coming each and every week through our series as we wrap up the book of Galatians because it's just about to get really good. And so don't give up yet. If you're bogged down or you're like, wow, that was, I'm still confused about that text. Trust me, I'm a little confused still too, right? But there's a sense that I hope that it was clear enough and I brought some clarity to what Paul is trying to illustrate here through this text. And as we wrap up this morning, Pastor Kurt's gonna come up and he's gonna lead us before God's table of communion and remembering what Jesus has done.